What is man? The question, what is man, is both asked by Scripture and answered in the person, work, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 8, which raises the question, is a messianic psalm in terms of the testimony of Scripture. Jesus Christ cited Psalm 8-2, Matthew 21-16, as fulfilled in the cry of the children in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, Matthew 21-15. Hosanna means, save, I pray. Christ, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, declared himself the Savior, and the children responded by crying to him for salvation, to the displeasure of the priests and scribes who demanded that the children be rebuked. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. Matthew 21.16 Clearly, the cry of the children was the fulfillment of Psalm 8.2, or at least a fulfillment. Psalm 8.6 is cited in 1 Corinthians 15.25-27. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, we are told that Christ will put down all rule and all authority and power. It is this victory which Psalm 8.6 celebrates. Commenting on all rule, Alfred pointed out that it meant not only hostile power and government, but as the context necessitates, all power. Christ being manifested as universal king, every power coordinate with his must come under the category of hostile. All kings shall submit to him. The kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And see the similar expressions of Ephesians 1.21, where speaking by anticipation, the apostle clearly indicates that legitimate authorities, all the powers that be, are included. Compare by all means Revelation 11.15. The resurrection and universal dominion of Christ are thus apparently set forth by the psalmist. The same verse in the psalm is cited again in Ephesians 1, 19-23 by St. Paul, who prays that the believers might truly know the richness of God toward them. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places? far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. To cite Alfred again, the resurrection of Christ was not a mere bodily act, an earnest of our bodily resurrection, but was a spiritual act, the raising of his humanity, which is ours, consisting of body and soul, from infirmity to glory, from the curse to the final triumph. In Hebrews 2, 5-9, through 9, we again have citations from this psalm. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. The whole psalm is clearly in mind here, and the meaning of the psalm is brought into focus. 
Alfred is again very much to the point in his comment. The general import of the eighth psalm may be described as being to praise Jehovah for his glory and majesty, and his merciful dealing with and exaltation of mankind. All exposition which loses sight of this general import and attempts to force the psalm into a direct and exclusive prophecy of the personal Messiah goes to conceal its true prophetic sense, and to obscure the force and beauty of its reference to him. This has been done by Bleak and others who have made the Son of Man a direct title here of Christ. It is man who in the psalm is spoken of, in the common and most general sense, the care taken by God of him, the lordship given to him, the subjection of God's works to him. This high dignity he lost, but this high dignity he has regained, and possesses potentially in all its fullness and glory, restored and forever secured to him. How, and by whom? By one of his own race, the man, Christ Jesus. Whatever high and glorious things can be said of man, belong of proper right to him only, in proper person to him only, but derivatively to us his brethren and members. And this is the great key to the interpretation of all such sayings as these. Whatever belongs to man by the constitution of his nature, belongs superlatively to that man who is the constituted head of man's nature, the second Adam, who has more than recovered all that the first Adam lost. To those who clearly apprehend and firmly hold this fundamental doctrine of Christianity, the interpretation of ancient prophecy and the New Testament application of Old Testament sayings to Christ become a far simpler matter than they ever can be to others. And so here it is to man, not to angels, that the world to come is subjected. This is the argument, and as far as the end of verse 8, it is carried on with reference to man, properly so called. There is here as yet no personal reference to our Lord, who is first introduced, and that in his lower personal human name at verse 9. This has been missed, and thus confusion introduced into the argument by the majority of commentators. The question, what is man, refers to man's weakness and low estate, yet God is mindful of him and gives him an exalted calling. According to Alexander on Psalm 8, we have here, therefore, a description of the dignity of human nature, as it was at first, and as it is to be restored in Christ, to whom the descriptive terms may therefore be applied, without force or fanciful accommodation on the one hand, and without denying the primary generic of the composition on the other. We must not forget that the psalm begins by declaring that the name of God is majestic and exalted above all things. It is God who alone is the source of all the glory of creation, whose majesty only reflects the glory of God and his name. The attacks upon God's name and honor by perverse men are readily silenced by the outcry of children, not because any power resides in children, but because God's name and being silence all enemies finally by their inescapable truth. If the praise of children can unsettle the enemy, how much more so the words of the wise. Leupold translated verse 2 thus, Out of the mouth of babes and even infants hast thou established a stronghold because of thine enemies, to still every enemy and revengeful person. Man was called to a glorious destiny in Adam by God's sovereign grace. By his fall, man destroyed that calling and made sin and death his destiny. Jesus Christ, as very man of very man, restored man to his original destiny and nature. Moreover, in Alfred's words, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has more than recovered all that the first Adam lost. Man, having been reestablished in the image of God, is now progressively led into dominion, righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Both in this world and in the world to come, it is man's destiny in Christ to exercise lordship over creation under God. Man was made to have dominion over the works of God's hands, 
and in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the first great manifestation of that dominion appeared. All things are put under man's feet, i.e. subject to his power in Christ. In this subjection, it is the glory of God which manifests itself in the new humanity of the second or last Adam, Jesus Christ. Therefore, O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Verse 9. Man is thus truly defined in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and he is that creature, made in God's image, who is called to exercise dominion over God's creation in terms of God's calling and law. Every definition is a fence and boundary, whereby a particular person, thing, or word is set apart from all else. To define man in terms of Jesus Christ means that the ungodly are deformed men, in that they are at war with their own definition. They seek to define themselves existentially, in terms of the moment, in terms of themselves exclusively. Whereas the redeemed man defines and knows himself in terms of Jesus Christ. If man is his own maker, then man can be his own principle of definition. If, however, man is a creation of God, then man can only be defined by God and in terms of his purpose. In Psalm 8, God himself, through the psalmist, raises the question, what is man? And God himself then defines man. God's definition, however, is not an abstraction. That which God defines, he also creates and recreates. The process of history is thus the progress of God's definition of man as it is realized in history. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was the major step in that definition. In that process, there is a double definition, first, of man in the state of depravity, and second, of man in the state of grace. The process of history makes progressively more plain the nature of fallen man. The tares become more obviously tares, Matthew 13, 24-30, and their nature becomes more consistent with their premises and wellsprings. Epistemological self-consciousness sets in so that men progressively know themselves in terms of their nature. They become aware of what they are. An example of this self-consciousness is Henry Miller, who is ready to see himself as a religious person. For Miller, in the beginning was the word, and that word is man. Man denies his word when he fails to be a law unto himself, and when he obeys ideas of good and evil. There is nothing in itself, we have been told time and again, which is wrong or evil. It is the fear of doing wrong, the fear of doing this or that act which is wrong. According to Miller, it is our dream life which offers a key to the possibilities in store for us. In dream, it is the Adamic man, one with the earth, one with the stars, who comes to life, who roams, through past, present, and future with equal freedom. For him, there are no taboos, no laws, no conventions. Pursuing his way, he is unimpeded by time, space, physical obstacles, or moral considerations. He sleeps with his mother as naturally as with another. If it be with an animal of the field he satisfies his desire, he feels no revolt. He can take his own daughter with equal enjoyment and satisfaction. In the waking world, shackled, crippled, paralyzed by every kind of fear, threatened at every step by real or imaginary punishments, almost every desire we seek to express is made to appear wrong or evil. When Miller is awake, he finds that he cannot escape God's world of good and evil although he imagines that in dreams such an escape exists. As a result, in order to escape God's definition of man, Miller declares that man as he is must be destroyed to make way for man's own recreation of man. Writing in 1940, Miller stated, It is no longer history which is being made. The present conflagration will rage until the old order of man is liquidated. It matters little if the current war, hot or cold, 
ends tomorrow or 50 years hence. There will be more wars to come, each more terrible than the last. Until the whole rotting edifice is completely demolished. Until we, Homo sapiens, are no more. All man's evils, for Miller, are due to the idea of God and an absolute good and evil. Wars will continue until man succeeds in destroying man as created in God's image and remakes himself in terms of his own word. Miller's definition of man belongs to his dream world. It has no relationship to reality and is suicidal as well as murderous. God's definition of man in Jesus Christ means that man is recreated in God's image by the atoning work of Jesus Christ and is given a specific task in history. Progress is ensured and historical development opened up by means of God's defining and redemptive act. The unregenerate seek to end history. Mark's ideal order is a static, unchanging realm, and the same is true of the dream orders of anarchists and pragmatists. God's creation and recreation inaugurate history. Man is given an objective and a purpose. The world is to be subjected to man. For this goal to be realized, man must first subject himself to God. From Miller's comments and from virtually any writer, it is apparent that in humanism we face the religious alternative to biblical religion. Both humanism and orthodox Christianity hold that man needs salvation. For humanism, man needs to be saved from God and the moral absolutes of God's revelation. For Christianity, man needs to be saved from sin and the consequences of sin, notably death. Both humanism and Christianity, in their consistent forms, believes in the need of death and rebirth on the one hand by the agency of man, on the other by the agency of God. Is into a static end-of-history world, in which no progress is possible, because man, as his own god, cannot be improved on, since man is himself the ultimate standard. If no absolute law governs man, and if man is his own law, neither man nor his works need improving. Quite logically, some humanistic painters and composers insist that any chance production of man is as truly art as the greatest paintings of earlier eras. In singing, this faith has been less successful. The croaking of an incompetent singer has not yet gained ascendancy over the beautifully trained voice. The biblical faith, because it finds the norm in God and his word, requires training, development, and progress in the arts, sciences, and life. Logical humanism, with man as his own law, cannot require these things without being schizophrenic or without denying itself. One final point. When St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.26 speaks of death as the last enemy, he is declaring that, before the end of the world, man will have largely overcome all other enemies by God's grace. All things then will be put under Christ's feet, and man's, by the great victory over death.